see everyone this morning. Blessing to come and worship the Lord with you. Um, some, what? Oh, uh, right there, sir. <laughs> um, all right, a few announcements as we get started this morning. Um, you know, as, as we're getting to the end of summer and we're getting back into the school, our, our, uh, we're going to be probably more consistent in the number of people that will fill our seats. And so while it may not look this way today, last week we had 80 people in service. Um, and so just in an effort to accommodate people, you know, especially as they come out, and just be conscious of you know, where you're sitting, ask it if you can, if you're able to, you and your family, move more to the center or to the edge, just so that new people, that as they come in, it's easy for them to fill in open spaces. Asking folks to do that, um, and also just to keep you updated, um, we're, we are in the process of purchasing more chairs to allow for more seats, so that process has begun. So just just know we're growing; that's a blessing, um, and we want to be you know accommodating for the growth that the Lord's doing all around. Uh, also, uh, starting this Sunday today, the uh, children will be back in Little New Academy building. Uh, so preschoolers are over there. Uh, parents dropping off preschoolers there to begin with, and we'll pick up after the service there. And then after the children's moment, um, ages five to nine-year-olds will leave with their teachers and walk across um, to the Little Bee building for, for children's service over there. Parents will pick your children up at the Little Bee building uh, after the service. If you, if you haven't done this before, you're new and you, you, know, you have questions, want to know where to go, definitely see, uh, you know, see Alan or myself or you know, see one of the other parents that knows kind of where that is. Very easy, just right around the corner, you know, front of the building, that's where you uh, pick your kids up. Um, so, but we'll be starting, uh, starting that back today. Um, and then also, we're still in need of teachers, so if you're interested in serving our, our children in that capacity, um, definitely you know, um, sign up to be a part of that team. So you can see Kelly Elliott for more information uh, on what it means to volunteer for with our children. Uh, also, just a reminder for the Boyers, the missionaries we support in Ireland, um, they're trying to get an entrepreneurial visa to go back to Ireland, and uh, they're working on establishing a, a coffee-selling business. Um, and their website is theforestandthesea.com. So if you're interested in supporting them or being a part of, uh, of, of helping them get back to Ireland, uh, go to their website, theforestandthesea.com. You can find out more information there and even purchase their coffee. I think we still have some of their coffee that we're, that we're sampling here. Not today. Not today. Okay. Uh, we have had some in the past. All right. Uh, if anyone missed the finance meeting that we had last week and you want more details, uh, see Joey Dixon uh, for, for, uh, for just an update on, on that report. If you missed that and you want that information, see him for, for more information. Uh, Mitchell Communities, this, uh, we're back into August now, so Mitchell Communities will start back up uh, uh, starting this week. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be doing, we'll, we're going to change the format for our questions, uh, whereas in the last kind of the last semester, last season, we had a template of questions that we followed every week. We're going to go back uh, to um, uh, to sending out specific questions. Uh, we'll, we'll write those ahead of time and send them out uh, each week. So we talked to the missional community leaders, Alan and I did, and we felt like, you know, for this season, we're going to try and get back to that and get those questions out, you know, in a timely manner. Um, so just know that, you know, if you're your group's been using those questions, you know, in the past, and they're one of the groups. They've got a little bit different format they're following, which is fine. It's working, um, so we're fine with that. But um, you know, if your group's been using that in the past, you can talk to your missional community leader about it. We'll be sending those questions out weekly, so you'll get those that will pertain to that particular passage in the sermon. So, so just just updates. You'll you'll see that coming around. 
The Michigan Community Groups will start back this week. Um, Pool Social this Wednesday, August 4th, 11 to 2 at the Burns House. Um, so if you and your children are available and you want to go to that, bring a picnic lunch, uh, come stay with your kids, don't just drop them off, uh, hang out, you know, bring their, you know, whatever pool supplies and things you need. But that's this Wednesday from 11 to 2 p.m. at the Burns House. Uh, also, there'll be a scavenger hunt for, uh, for children ages uh, 5 to 10 plus, I believe. Is that right? Okay, that's just, okay. <laughs> From ages 5 to 10 plus. Um, meet 3 p.m. here on August 7th uh, for scavenger hunt uh, and then dinner to follow. Uh, if you have questions about that, you might want to detail uh, to Kelly or to Caroline. did something like this back several months ago with the older students, uh, and now we're giving that opportunity to the younger students. All right. Uh, women's meeting, uh, women's Bible study meeting will be uh, August the 22nd. At 6.30, men will have our monthly meeting on the 29th. That'll be that following Sunday evening at 6.30. Um, we tentatively just have planned a men's camp out for uh, October the 1st, so that's a Friday. So men mark your calendar for that. Um, that'll be at the Groves uh, House. So it'll be October the, October the 1st. Uh, Renewal Wade Hampton, uh, the meal prep ministry from 11 to 12, uh, to 12.30 on Tuesdays. Again, that's going to go through August, and August will shift to Thursday. Um, if you have any questions about that or you're interested in volunteering uh, for that ministry, see Natalie Dixon. And I think that's it. Alan, did I miss anything? No? Okay. Our call to worship this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Let's pray. Father God, we come and we celebrate you, and we worship you this morning. We here and gather because of the gospel, because of the work that Christ has done on the cross. We come, if we're in Christ, we profess faith in Christ, then we follow you. We seek to have our lives changed by your spirit that's given through faith in Jesus. For the centuries ago, you promised to Peter that upon that rock, that profession of faith, you would build your church universal through the local gathering of faithful believers. So Father, we're part of that this morning to be in our presence, to meet with us, Father, to do business in our hearts, make us more like Him, that we would be light and salt for the world around us, not for our glory, but that they might see our good works, the evidence of the change that Christ brings in our hearts, that Jesus would be glorified. In Jesus' name that I pray.
Let's stand together, please. <clears throat>
So while I tune my guitar, I'd like to hear a little bit from you all. We haven't done this in a while. Want to do it again. If we get a few people to say something, that would be great. Uh, what we have done several times in the past is because we believe that acceptable worship before God is done both in spirit and in truth, um, that uh, we believe that worshiping God in truth is to uh, acknowledge the principles of God given to us from the scriptures, acknowledging those and uh, using those as, as a foundation or a platform to kind of catapult us into sincere worship. So if you're bold enough for the edification of the body uh, to maybe list out loud something of God that he has revealed to you, whether it's common knowledge to every man because it's in the scriptures, uh, I guess it, it would have to be that, that uh, that you would just kind of lay that out there right now. You know, uh, God is sovereign and that brings you great grace and peace or God is the author of these things just just yeah just amen God is your refuge and strength right right so things just like that just for the edification of the body I'll give you just a moment to do that lately that's a reminder to you of the goodness of God.
Austin is going to come on up. If uh, you kiddos want to come join him, a lot of our kiddos are over there at Little Me. We're so thankful for those that serve over there. That's uh, just on to me. That's where several of our people are this morning. So uh, readjusting to what it looks like in here with that going on. So I'm so thankful um, that that's that that's happening. Kelly, again, thank you for getting that organized for us. And uh, again, if Mandy ever sees this, thanks again to Mandy and Little Me for for letting us use their spot. So. Kids, Austin Jowers. <laughs> <laughs> well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Still enjoying summer? Yeah. Is it hot enough for you? Yes, no. <laughs> You're laughing. I see that. <laughs> well, it's good to see everybody this morning. So in our times, the, the last several weeks, we've been talking about the church, right? We're talking about the church and that the church belongs to Jesus, right? Jesus is the head of the church, okay, or he's the, uh, you know, he's the shepherd of the church. He's the leader of the church, all right? And then last week, we talked about that we're part of the new covenant, okay? That was kind of a big idea. We talked about how in the Old Testament, God had given the old, uh, the old covenant, and a covenant's an agreement, right? An agreement between God and his people about how they should live, how they should worship him, how, what they should do about sin, okay? Disobedience to God, all of these things. And we talked about how in the old covenant, the people failed to follow in that agreement and how God brought discipline upon them, but that he promised that there would be a time when there would be a new agreement. There would be a new covenant, when the people of God would have the law of God, the, 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 um, the, that agreement, not external on stone or on paper, but it would be written within their hearts. And we talked about how Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, he brought that new agreement to us. So that as we have faith in Christ and we trust in him, he writes his, he writes his law, he writes that new agreement upon our hearts and our affections are changed. All right, and we love God for who he is. We desire to follow him in the way he's laid out for us through following Jesus. Okay, and so we're, we're a people who gather under that, and we worship and we live together under that new covenant, under that new agreement. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more this morning about our, us as Christians, that the church gathers together, and we're people who worship and we serve together. Okay, the word church means those who are called out. Okay, called out of a life lived to the world and through the world, that we now have a new leader. We have a new person that we follow, and that's Jesus. Okay, so we're called out, the called out ones. Okay, but church, let me ask you this. Is this the only church building? Are you sure? Are there more church buildings? How many of you passed a church on the way here? A building, right? Okay, so there's different, there's different churches, right? There are different... There are different places where people who profess to believe in Jesus meet, okay, and they gather, and they're doing a lot of what we're doing here this morning, right? So the church doesn't just mean Haven Ridge, okay, or First Baptist on the corner of this street, or, you know, wh what, whatever, you know, that doesn't, doesn't just mean that local, what we call the expression, okay, a local expression. It also has a bigger meaning, right, what's what's called the church universal or the the phrase we'll use a lot of times here at haven ridge is the global church okay remember i read this morning from from uh, uh from matthew where jesus told peter he says upon this rock i will build my church he didn't mean upon this rock i'm going to build haven ridge no he meant the church global or the church universal right all the people who've professed faith in christ and who who uh, and who worship him who gather together 
okay, across all time and across all the world. Okay, so that's the church universal. That's the church global. Do you know when Paul, and, and Alan's going to preach part of uh, this will kind of come up in Alan's sermon, when Paul said he, he didn't feel worthy to be an apostle because he persecuted the church. Okay, that wasn't just one local church, right? He was talking about the church at large. He was a persecutor of the, of the church. He, kill, he killed Christians at large. Okay, so there's, that, there's the idea of the big church, church universal, church global, all the people who profess faith in Christ and to put their uh, faith in him throughout all of history and across the world, okay? But the whole church doesn't just gather together like that on Sundays in worship, right? There are what we call local expressions of that global body. That's the phrase that we'll a lot of times use here to, to help understand the, the relationship between the church universal and the church local, Okay, you know, when Paul wrote his letters, he would address them to specific churches in specific locations, right? He said to the church at Galatia or the church at Thessalonia, okay, or the, the, the Thessalonian churches, okay? So you see these local expressions where people gather together and they worship, okay, and they serve one another, and they pray together, okay? These are local expressions of that larger global body, okay? Now, it's important that we think about the church in big picture terms, universal, but also in local terms, okay? The, and one of the reasons for that is it's important for us to realize that we're part of a larger, a larger picture. We're part of a whole, okay? So we understand our relationship to one another as Christians, okay? That if you were to travel and you were to, say, go to China or you were to go to Bangladesh or, you know, somewhere in South Africa or somewhere else, and you ran into someone else who professed to be a believer in Christ, and you sat down and talked to them, and you realized that you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You put your faith in Christ. God does a work in you, and there's a local expression of that, of, of, of God's saving power in another group of people somewhere else on the world. Right? That's encouraging to see that the gospel, God is using the gospel to save people and bring them in, into the fellowship of Christ and into his family all across the world. Okay, so we're part of a bigger whole. That God says that in when Jesus returns, that there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every people group that'll gather around the throne and worship him. Right? That's going to be an amazing and 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 humbling sight. Right? Okay? But it also matters because we need to understand where worship and service happens, okay? It happens at the local level as we gather together, okay? The things that God calls the church to do is people gather together. We're supposed to do that together, okay? And that's important that we meet. Like, why do we come on Sunday mornings? Is it because your parents told you to? Yeah, <laughs> you didn't know that answer. <laughs> okay, but it's important that we understand why do we do this? You know, why is this part of what we do? No, it's not just because God has said so, but because it's very, very important for our growth as Christians together. The author of Hebrews, in the, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes to a people who they're being persecuted, they're suffering, okay, and they're being tempted to move away from Jesus and not meet together, okay? They're like, well, this isn't really advantageous for us socially and, you know, in our in our sphere and, you know, where we work and stuff, and we're being persecuted for it, we're being suffering, so they're being tempted to move away from it. And the author of Hebrews writes this really big, really important letter to them 
just encouraging them to stay faithful in Jesus. And here's part of what he says. He tells them, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's Jesus. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Now here's the important part. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. Okay? So what he's saying is, don't neglect gathering together because this is so important for your growth in your faith and for the carrying out of God's mission in the world. How many of you guys have seen the movie The, the Incredibles? The first one, the first one, okay? Okay, well, maybe you'll pick up on this. Who remembers in the movie The Incredibles, who remembers in the very beginning of the movie, Mr. Incredibles doing his you know, superhero thing, and he tells Buddy, Buddy, you know, Buddy comes along, he wants to be a sidekick. What does Mr. Incredible tell Buddy? He, he says it's been a long time. It's been a long time, Buddy. Come on. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Okay, me too. But I mean, I got this fantastic memory for kids' movies. So, okay, so he tells Buddy. He tells Buddy. He says, "I work alone." You know, Buddy wants to be a sidekick. I mean, this is like crucial to the whole plot of the movie. So, he wants to be a sidekick. He says, "I work alone." You know, we're like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. You know, Mr. Incredible, he's, he's kind of a lone superhero, does his own thing. Okay, a lot of Christians kind of feel that way. They're like, you know, I don't need to gather together with other people and worship on Sunday mornings. You know, I can go and I can go for a walk and I can worship God. You know, or I can ride a motorcycle and worship God. Or I can, you know, I can do, you know, whether I don't need to be a part of a local expression. You know, well, Scripture tells us it's very different. God didn't design us for that way. Okay, now it's one thing. Can you go and you, can you go for a hike and go sit on a mountain and, and maybe take your Bible and worship and pray? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But we shouldn't do that and neglect gathering with other believers in the context in which God has called us to. Okay, let me give you two reasons why. Okay, one of those is that Christians, we're called to worship God in communities of faith, to do that together. Okay, to come and to sing songs together, and that encourages one another to pray together, not just to pray individually, but to pray together as a whole. Okay, that as we gather together and we pray and we share those prayer requests with one another, and then we ask, How has God answered those prayers? We begin to see how God works in other people's lives, and you're involved in that process of God answering prayers with people. If you didn't gather together with people regularly, how would you know that God was answering those prayers? Right? To sit under the good preaching of the word, right? God has called pastors like me and Mr. Allen to preach the word and to teach it. So you can better understand who God is in your relationship to him, in the relationship of the church to people and to the world. Right? All of these things are things that we're called to do and to do so as we gather together. It's one of the main ways God has set in place for us to encourage one another and to be taught the word. Okay, secondly, it's also so that we can serve God and serve one another in our communities together. Okay, God's given spiritual gifts to people, right? He's given gifts to people, and people are gifted in different ways. And the way in which people get to express those gifts, one of the primary ways is within the church body itself. Right? Definitely out in the world as we demonstrate the work of God in our hearts to people that we're around. But also as we gather together and we minister to one another. 
right? That allows us to be a blessing to others, but also for people to be a blessing to us. Do you know if we don't gather together that we rob others of the joy and the blessing of serving us? Is Mr. Aaron standing right behind me? Okay, you know, one of his favorite phrases, and I love this, you know, I know he's kind of laughing because he knows what I'm about to say. You know, when he, try, when he serves, he's, you know, when he's tried to serve me, I say, oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. He'll say, don't rob me of my joy. And it's great. I, I love that because he, it means he has joy in exercising the gifts and the blessings that God has given him in service to others. And that's a joy to him. And oftentimes I forget that if I don't allow other people to serve me, that, that can rob them of the joy and the blessing of utilizing those gifts. But if we don't, so if we don't gather together, we don't give other people that opportunity to serve. But we also rob ourselves of the ability to serve other people, right? Okay, so those are just kind of two ways as we, God calls us to worship together and to be an encouragement to one another, to pray, to sing songs, to send under the preaching of the word, right? So that we can be better equipped to go out and to minister in the world around us. Okay, to be sharpened, but also so that we can serve one another. Okay, that we can be a blessing to one another and allow people to be a blessing to us. Okay? The local church is one of the primary means that God uses of seeing the universal church grow and be all that Christ has planned us to be. All right? So I hope that helps give you a better understanding. Why do we come on Sunday mornings? What's for those very reasons? Okay. That's right. So we worship God. All right, well, let me pray for it, okay? And then you guys will be dismissed, and you guys get to go over to the Little Me building, okay, and have, <clears throat> and, and have a time of, of worship and Bible study, okay, with Miss Kelly, right? Okay, Miss Kelly will meet you guys back at the door. All right, let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Lord, the church was your idea. It wasn't something that was cooked up and figured out, you know, in, in some governmental building or just a bunch of people getting together and say, hey, you know, let's, let's do this thing. You know, you designed it. You, it was your idea. And so, Father, may we be faithful to look to your word, to listen to your spirit as you, as you align our thoughts and our hearts and our motives with Christ and with your word. Father, to live together, to encourage one another to worship you faithfully as you've outlined, to pray individually and corporately together, to share those prayers with one another and share the answers to those prayers. Father, may we be invested in the lives of one another. And Father, may you then turn around and send us out into a world to be faithful, to display those same gifts as the gospel is heard and is also seen. So Father, would you enrich the ears of everyone this morning, Father, especially these young children. Lord, may they see and grab hold of the reason we gather and we come together and worship every Sunday. Father, that it's not just some cultural behavior. But it's crucial to our life in Jesus and our life together. It's to you we give the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. Thank you. Let's stand again, please.
before Alan comes and preaches, uh, let's, uh, let's pray. That's what we do, Father. We come to worship you, the holy God. The God who is holy, other, set apart. I'm reminded of the, the imagery when you inaugurated the, the Old Testament covenant with Moses. You were on the mountain. And you set a perimeter around the mountain and said, none may come closer than this. And the Israelites trembled, fell down. For you were holy, other, separate. But we've not come to that mountain. We've come to the inauguration of a new covenant. Through the shed blood of Christ, where the veil was torn open, and Christ as a forerunner for us has entered within that veil and is our anchor, our sure and steadfast hope. And so, upon the profession of His blood, His shed blood, His righteousness, we can, as Paul says, come before you boldly. You who are holy, who are other, who are set apart, and who places upon us the challenge and responsibility to also be holy, to be other, to be set apart, to be the called out ones. May we not take this charge lightly, Father. May we consider what it means for us. to be called Christians. So, Lord, pray that we would be faithful in our ministry to reconcile others to you and to one another through the gospel. Father, I lift up our missionaries in Bangladesh and China and Ireland In other parts of the world, Father, they be faithful to take that personal gospel to those who you have put in their play, in their in their midst. Keep them faithful, Father. Give them eyes to see Jesus, to see and trust in the phenomenal work that He does when a person comes to faith in Christ. They see themselves as. Merely the conduits of that message of grace. And then would they be faithful to help shepherd and counsel believers in what it means to work that faith out with fear and trembling as they exercise their gifts of grace and mercy to others around them. Father, would we be faithful to do the same? Father, the fruits of the gospel would give evidence to others of the root of that gospel. So, Father, bless Alan as he comes. He brings and teaches us more and more about the true gospel of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you can open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 11 through verse 16 this morning. Really 16b, so not even all of, not even all of 16. 
You ever heard the expression, the customer is always right? I'm sure you all have. Um, What's not true, (laughs) obviously, Um, but sometimes it's especially difficult, right? Especially when the customer is Joey Dixon, I'm just saying. So this week, this week, uh, Solid was hired to work at Joey's house to work on a leak, and I think Jonah is a sick joke to me. Jonah's the owner of the company. He asked me, or told me, I guess, to go work at uh, to go work at Joey's house. And I think he got a got a kick out of that. Didn't send Austin. Didn't send any other lead guys. Sent me. Well, he sent uh, Adam as a lead guy, which is another thing. This this guy that's you know an athlete. What he's six foot three, athletic. And just rolls. It doesn't matter how hot it is, how cold it is. He doesn't even eat. He's a machine. And I'm, you know, I'm a 41 going on 187 trying to keep up with this guy. And the sun's killing us, you know. And so then I've got to deal with Joey who comes out in the beginning of the day. says, hey, let me talk to you. I said, okay. He says, hey, don't be awful today. That's how he encourages me, right? Working on his house. Uh, and you know what? This has nothing to do with my sermon. I just want you to know that you need to pray for your pastors because sometimes we're in these situations or we have to deal with, with curmudgeons, okay? We have to deal with difficult people. Um, I love Joey Dixon, but I was like, I've got to work at his house. You know, he's coming and inspecting my work and saying, hey, this is shoddy material. You know, this is, this. I'm like, come on, man. You know, uh, anyway, and then I blame the lead, you know, and so it's, uh, it's all good. So being a number two has its perks. You can always blame the number one, right? So anyway, having said all that, pray for your pastors. You know, sometimes we are in these situations where, it's just tough. So here's our text for today. Galatians 1, 11 through 16. I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll kind of walk through it. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So I think there's a lot to learn from this honorable mention, I guess, that Paul gives to his, maybe not honorable mention, but this mentioning that Paul makes towards his conversion experience. And so I think what Paul does here is Paul kind, he, he kind of lays out a, a, a soteriological framework for us to understand the mechanics of salvation. Okay, so I'm just going to deal with the text here today as, as, as I understand it, as I've labored over this or through this, uh, and we'll, we'll get through it together. So here's my objective today, to see how the gospel works in relationship to the effectual calling of God. Because something interesting happens here. You have the gospel, and you have the gospel call that is said to go out to every man, 
that's our, and that's our objective, right, is we're to be about the business of giving the gospel to every man, woman, child, every nation, every tongue, all of these things. That's, that's our goal. Whether you're a Calvinist, Arminian, whatever, we all come to terms on that. It's like we give the gospel. We're not powerful to save people. The gospel is, but there's an aspect of that that sometimes, at least I don't always think of, and that's that the gospel works in tandem with the call of God. And I think that's the argument that Paul is making. And I think it's consistent with Paul's other writings in the other epistles, in Romans, and so on. And so I'm going to lean in on that today as we work through three simple points as we kind of investigate his conversion and see how we are to understand the gospel a little more fully. Okay, so I think there's a framework that's provided. But the first thing you see is this, that Paul's going to be sure to make sure that we understand that that getting the source of the gospel is critical to understanding the gospel itself. So we have to get the source of the gospel, understand where the gospel came from. Now, this is kind of low-hanging fruit today for the most part. We'll get into some stuff that's a little meaty, a little weighty here, uh, you know, at the tail end of this thing. But understand that Paul says, for I would have you know, Paul wants to make this perfectly clear. We gloss over this, and that's, and that's I'm not going to say that's fine, but we gloss over that sometimes. We, say, we just kind of read it, and there it is, for I would have you know. Understand that Paul's kind of taking a moment here. He wants to get their attention. He wants them to understand, I'm going to say something significant. I'm going to say something that you need to hold on to. And just for a reminder of the context is they've left the gospel they were called to and are going to a false gospel. They're going to the gospel of works, the gospel of the Judaizers. And he's trying to get their attention, saying, wait a second, as you and I would do if we encountered anyone that's falling into unbelief or someone that's claiming to be in Christ, and yet they're buying into some false gospels that are creeping in, you would get their attention. You'd say, wait, let's, let's have a conversation. Let me, let me humbly and graciously point out where you might be falling into error. And this is what Paul is doing. Again, he's not angry with them. He loves them. These are new believers who need to be discipled. We all understand this well. You and I might be there now. We definitely were there. Or we know people of the same, uh, cut from that same cloth where there are new Christians and they need to be discipled. Um, And so we may have missed a great chance in the last two sermons to talk about the necessity of discipleship. But it's definitely there. They're new believers. They're buying into something. This happens all the time. This happens with you and me. Maybe it's not a different gospel, but maybe we buy into something uh, and, we, and we like it because it's preferential or whatever. Uh, we like it because maybe we don't have the discipline or, or the sobriety of mind spiritually to stay away from something. And so we gravitate maybe towards things that we shouldn't. So Paul starts out wanting you to know, look, we need to understand first the source of the gospel. Brothers, The gospel I'm speaking of, he says, is the gospel that was preached by me, and it's a gospel that's not man's gospel. It's not man's gospel. We always have to consider the source of things, and we do this all the time, right? We consider the source. If someone of, I would say, poor repute says something against you or about you, maybe you're like me and you get all tangled up. I I do. If someone says something, I get all bothered. You know, like if there's a, the, we've had one, that one negative review about Haven Ridge, uh, you know, from that hostile person from many, many months ago, it tore me up inside. I'm like, what in the world? I mean, it just really grieved my heart. And so many people came to me and said, consider the source. And you have to do that. I still get tangled up inside. And I bet many of you, some of you do not, some of you are just 
machines. You're like, I just, I don't care. I go, you know, but me, I'm like, this, this hurts me. You know, it bothers me. I, I wear it and I wear it heavily, you know, and I think I identify with some of you in here. Um, and so it really bothers me. But one thing I have to do is I have to consider, consider the source. You know, if I'm getting my information from my seven-year-old boy as of yesterday, mm, I'm going to consider the source, right? You know, so uh, my seven-year-old boy, whom I love to the ends of the earth, is not someone that you should get your theological uh, uh, foundations from, okay, as, as has been proven over and over again. He says something like, okay, I consider the source, right? But we understand this. This is commonplace to us. It's not lost on us. And this is a very simple act that Paul is doing. He's saying, look, I want you to understand this wasn't from me. And he says this by contrast because what they received was from man. He said, this is different. This is not from man. And I'm going to explain to you that this is from God himself. Because Paul has a unique testimony in that Jesus personally visited him. He has not done that for you, and he has not done that for me. And it hasn't happened much at all, right? But Paul, it did. So he has a very unique testimony. He's leaning on that, and he's saying, look, look, Jesus wasn't just a part of me coming to Christ. He came to me personally. He spoke to me. He challenged me. He made revelation to me. So I, I, I'm, I'm coming to you with firsthand evidence that this isn't from me. I didn't sit in my room and conjure up this message and hoping that you would believe me, you know, but that's exactly what man has done. Now, man may not be intending to have a false gospel, but they do, right? And it's from man. It's from the heart of man, which is, which is deceitful and wicked. And so that's the gospel of works that Paul is combating. It's not man's gospel, the gospel that he talks about. Um, you know, a works-based gospel is a man's gospel. And it's a man's gospel for two primary reasons. First of all, it's created by man. It's created, well, let me give you three reasons. It's created by man. Christ never taught he never taught that one is saved by works. That's one of man's gospels. Christ never taught it. All right, that's why we know it's a man's gospel. That's why Paul says it's a man's gospel. By contrast of him saying it's the gospel he has is not man's gospel. You know, Christ never said that, but rather, rather that he is, Christ taught that he is saved. He is saved uh, for works, not saved by works. All right, we understand that from Ephesians uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2. That's very clear. So man is not saved by works, but he's saved for works. And the second reason I would argue that man's, uh, that the, sorry, that, that a works-based gospel is a man's gospel is because it places unbiblical and unattainable expectations on man. Un, 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 unattainable expectations on man. You think about it. If the, the gospel of work says, okay, in order for you to be right, you have to do so many things. You have to keep the law. My first question is, who can keep the law? Nobody. You have to, you have to if you're put on a scale, your good has to outweigh the bad. Well, right out of the gate, you're in trouble because outside of Christ, everything that you deem is good is not good when, it, when, when, when God is judging it. Because he says your righteousness is as filthy rags. And that is a reference to a woman's menstrual cycle. That is exactly what that text talks about. And to understand the historical context of that really adds insult to injury. Because he's saying yours is like filthy rags. What happened to a woman during that time when she was, she was enduring her time of the month? She was ostracized. She was cast out. She was not allowed in the temple. You know, she was, she was an outcast. And he's saying on a spiritual, universal scale... That's who you were. Those, that's the best that you bring to the table. 
That's what you bring to the table, you know. Mother Teresa, heralded as one of the uh, uh, the, the, the kindest, sweetest servants of God ever. If Mother Teresa trusted in her church and not justification by faith alone, Mother Teresa never saw the glory of God in heaven. You understand this, right? Because it's not, the standard is not our works, because if it was, then we wouldn't make the cut. The standards are Christ's works, and his works equal perfection, and it's that perfection, that righteousness that is then imputed to us so that we can stand before God being right with God because of Christ's righteousness. So it places an unbiblical and unattainable expectation on man. I mean, how much do you have to hate another man to tell him he can earn his way to heaven, really? How much disdain do you have to have for someone to propose to them that, well, you got to do good enough, you got to work hard enough? And, and it's a struggle because the world doesn't see that because a lot of the world, and I'm making generalizations just based on what I've seen, a lot of those that I've encountered, it seems like that's always what we're combating is a works-based gospel or a works-based religion. I mean, if works could somehow reconcile you to God, how do we know when we've done enough? How do we know when that scale is tipped? How do we know? that the good has outweighed the bad. The best works of men is negated by sins. I mean, when we think of the book of James and he says, one sin separates you. What if we have a million good works, but then we, but then we get honest with ourselves and look at James 2 and he says, one sin separates you for eternity, one sin. And then the reality of your own sin lands on you. You're like, I have a, I have a lifetime of sins <laughs> chalked up against me. You know, it stands to reason that all, that it, you can put all the good there, but that one kind of outweighs it. That's the, that's how detrimental sin is. That's how offensive it is, and that's the great consequence of sin. Our works as unbelievers are rejected and deemed filthy by God. So that's another reason that I believe a works-based religion is a, a works-based gospel is a man-centered gospel. Thirdly, it's a man-centered gospel because it glorifies man. It glorifies man. If man's responsibility, which I do agree with if it's defined correctly, is to earn his way, then it is necessary or it necessarily follows that man has the right to take some credit for his glory. Now, that's just a logical conclusion, okay? Now, we can have fun debate over man's responsibility and all of these things, and I think it's appropriate. And man does have a responsibility, uh, but not to save himself, which I don't think anybody in here would say that. The man doesn't have that responsibility, for he cannot. You would be denying the scriptures that are very, very clear about man's inability to find Christ without Christ. And so Paul labors the point that our hope is not in man. That's, 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 that's what he's trying to get across. You know, you, if you subscribe to this, it's a man-centered gospel, and there's no hope there. And so he's like, listen, what, what I'm giving to you is not from man, but it's from God. I'm giving you a firsthand account that Jesus himself, a risen Christ, this is a big deal, a risen Christ has said to me, you know, this is what it is. And what's interesting at this point is Paul kind of stops because you can take verses 1 and 2, or I'm sorry, verses 11 and 12, and then pick up in verse 15 as if 13 and 14 don't even exist. And that kind of gives you a full soteriological package, okay, or salvific package. 
But Paul inserts this. He inserts a bit of his resume as he does in other, of other epistles. And, he's, and he uses this to show you, look, I, let, me, let me stress this point of the power of this gospel. So we saw the source of the gospel. So I think here we see what I would call the imposing nature of the gospel. You understand what something that's imposed is, something that's even forced on you, something that uh, we talk about imposing our will on someone. We impose our will on our children all the time. And it's good. And it's right for the most part, right? If we're looking out for their best interest, we're imposing our will on our children because we know what's good for them. My kid wants to go play in the street blindfolded. I'm going to impose my will and say, uh, no, you're not. You know, maybe there's a fun game of dodgeball going on and we're all in the street together and that's a different, that's a different scenario. But we make it clear to our children that we're going to make these boundaries for their protection. So we're going to impose our will and that's always good. And nobody would deny that. Nobody's going to be mad at me for imposing my will on my kid that looks after their safety, and I'm not going to be mad at you. It would be ludicrous to think or to do otherwise. So when we think of Paul's conversion, what has happened, and I'm going to argue it from the text, is that Jesus imposed his will onto Paul because it's very clear what Paul says here in a moment. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He didn't want anything to do with Jesus. He hated everything to do with Jesus, in fact, and you can't deny that. You can't deny that. So listen to what he says you know, he says, for I did not receive it from any man, this gospel, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism behind many, uh, beyond many of my own age or many of my contemporaries or my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Understand that it took quite a lot of discipline and knowledge to become a Pharisee, okay? And Paul says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he was the cream of the crop. And he was the man, right? I mean, he had the Torah memorized. I mean, they had to have it memorized. I mean, he, he, he dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and then went above and beyond, okay? This is a, this is a quintessential overachiever when it comes to being a religious leader. And Paul's leaning on this saying, listen, I want to stress something to you. In my former life, I, I, I not only wanted nothing to do with Christianity, I wanted nothing to do with this gospel, which he did know, by the way. I attacked it. I wasn't neutral towards it. I wasn't, ah, take it or leave it. I wasn't just against it even. But I armed myself against the gospel. I wasn't just in disagreement with it. But I went on the offensive I went on the attack of it. He says, I went and I was seeking to destroy the church violently. Do you know what he did? I mean, he would go houses to people who professed to be Christians. As the gospel spreading, which he knew and hated, he would literally drag them out of their homes so that they might be stoned. Stephen is one of the accounts that we have in the book of Acts of Paul doing just that very thing. He sat by and watched it happen not just watched it, but sanctioned it, led the charge, went through the channels to get permission to see, uh, see to it that this would actually happen. So this is why Paul brings this back into the picture here, because he wants to remind them, if this wasn't something that interrupted and imposed itself on me, why in the world would I be subscribing myself to it? Because I had nothing desirous in me that led me to the gospel. No, nothing at all, you know, and so 
He speaks of his former life in Judaism. He speaks of being a persecutor of the church, trying to violently destroy them. I mean, do you remember, I even referenced this, I think, last week or two weeks ago. I think it was last week, where John writes, uh, well, we, well, we see Jesus speaking in, in the Gospel of John, and he says, listen, they're going to, they're going to hate you. They're going to try to cast you out of the synagogue. The religious leaders are going to do this. They're not only going to cast you out. You're not only going to be an outcast, but they're going to seek to kill you. Who do you think Jesus is actually referring to? Paul. Paul is the religious leader. He represents the religious leaders who sought to cast them out, to ostracize them, to make them outcasts, and not just that, but to kill them. And Paul did it. You see what Jesus said come to fruition in the life of Paul. While at the same time being set apart to be born again, to be used to spread the very gospel that he killed people for subscribing to. It's really, really crazy the way, the way Jesus works. It just shows that, you know, his will will be done. I mean, it really points to that. It points to the beauty of the will of God and that all things truly do happen after the counsel of his, of his will. It's, it's, it's undeniable. And so Paul would literally go house to house and drag these Christians out, uh, and, and they would be either imprisoned or stoned to death. I mean, these things actually happen. This is giving his resume, you know. But what happens is very interesting, is Paul is made to not only see, but Paul is made to believe. I think this explanation here is critical in understanding the mechanics of the gospel, okay, because Paul's conversion, which he references in greater detail somewhere else, but here he's on his way to Damascus. He's persecuting church. He's actually in the act of going to persecute, going to stone, going to arrest, whatever he was going to do on that day. And he references that and he says, in that moment, I received the gospel, but I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're tracking with me, you should be asking the question, what do you mean he, he, he wasn't taught it? I mean, he already knew it. How do we reconcile these things? I mean, man did actually teach Paul the gospel because he knew the gospel. You're not going to be a Pharisee and not know what's going on in your culture around you. So how do you reconcile those things? Well, Paul's conversion was the same and yet different from most any other man's. Here's how it's different. It's different in that Paul was visited in person by Jesus Christ, and that hasn't happened for you or for me. But it's similar in that the same, it's the same in that all can have knowledge of the gospel, but only Christ brings life out of that knowledge. All of you knew the gospel before it actually saved you. I mean, that's how that works, right? You knew the gospel. Many of you know so many people as I do that have sat under the gospel for all of these years, and yet they still reject. They still disbelieve, right? So this is where Paul was. He knew the gospel. He understands it. He's not saying that he had no awareness of the gospel. He could probably articulate the gospel better than most at this time. He just rejected it. He hated it. He acted against it. He labored violently against the gospel. Surely he had a strong understanding of what the gospel was as a Pharisee. This was the very reason he sought to stamp out Christianity, because he understood the gospel. But there's a difference in acknowledging and understanding the tenets and actually receiving the gospel. And that's his point here. Now, this is where the rubber starts to meet the road a little bit for us. We need to understand the difference in the two, is that there's the gospel that actually that, 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 that is, is uh, as Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God of salvation unto all who believe. It's the gospel that the power is activated 
versus the gospel that you hear, but its power never affects you. And I think what Paul does in these next few lines is he explains how we reconcile these things. How do we reconcile, I've heard the gospel all my life, or he's heard the gospel, or she's heard the gospel all their life and never received, yet this person hears it one time, and boom, they get it, right? They get it. So Paul gives his resume here to place emphasis on the nature of Christ's revelation. He is receiving this revelation. Paul is saying that although he knew and could articulate the gospel as Christ has made this revelation, verse 12. He's saying, although he knew these things and could articulate the gospel before his conversion, it was Christ who made the revelation that changed him. Some may push back and say, it sounds like you're getting dangerously close to Christ imposing himself or Christ forcing a salvation onto Paul that Paul did not want. I just want to alleviate your question and say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Paul didn't want it. Neither did you until you were given eyes to see, a heart to discern, a desire for Jesus. And I believe that comes from him giving you life. And then in that life called regeneration, you seek and savor Jesus. Because up until that point, you don't. You don't. That's a part of the explanation. That's why you can hear the gospel over and over and over, it never lands. You never see the power of it. Because Christians should ask that question. They should ask that question. If we believe in the power of the gospel, why are so many people unaffected by it? Because the gospel is not just for the believer, right? We, the gospel is for the believer, but it's for the unbeliever unto salvation. But we talk about the gospel, and our, 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 the theme of Haven Ridge in 2021 and for the rest of our life is gospel centrality we talk about this we chose the book of galatians because it's so gospel central and we believe that it's powerful but you and i if we're just really honest with ourselves maybe we've asked ourselves the question i believe in its power i believe in all these things but why does it seem like so many are unaffected by it i mean do you not i I ask those questions i I have to kind of go back to the you know i don't know if you call it the woodshed whatever it is i have to go back to these places sometimes and ask myself what I don't make sense of this. Let me beef up my apologetic and my way of thinking for these things. Now, uh, one thing that I've mentioned before, and I'll say it again, what I appreciate about this church body so much is I know a lot of us are reformed in our soteriology, and many are not, and that's okay. That's okay. You also understand that the way that I approach a text is through that lens, and I understand that. I try to be... um, I try to let the text speak for itself. So I'm going to argue this as best as I can textually, all right? As always, if someone has any kind of pushback or a, another way of thinking, I always welcome conversation. We want that conversation. Those conversations might be great to, to come up in missional community and things of that because it's going to sharpen us as we think through these things. Um, but, but I'm going to present this as I understand it, walking through the text and make an argument to show you that this isn't on a whim, this isn't, hey, this is just how I feel in my emotions. This is a textual argument, which I would hope that you would make as well. And so I want to go through and present the last portion of this sermon, and, uh, uh, but obviously from a, from a more reformed approach to it, okay? So, appreciate the grace, right? So, 
Paul didn't want Christ any more than you wanted Christ before he made you new. We do this with our children all the time because we know what's best. I'm talking about imposing our will again. Imposing onto them what is best for them, what is good, what they don't even realize that they need. I'm just showing that when God does it, we get upset. When we do it, it's okay. We wouldn't hesitate to force something on our children if it meant it would save them, right? I mean, if someone was going to end their own life, church, if they were going to end their own life and you could, you could step in and stop it, if they had a gun to their head or pills in their hand or whatever or on a ledge and you had the opportunity to impose your will, you would do it. You would do it, right? And I know there's way more to the argument than this, but I'm just expressing how my mind is working, how I'm thinking through this. I don't have an issue with Christ, although Paul wasn't looking for it imposing his will, and imposing salvation onto Paul. Is it not what Paul needs? Is it not what you and I need? Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul didn't want it until he was made to see the value of it and his need for it. So this is the point. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't a seeker. He wasn't only, he wasn't only in unbelief of the gospel, but he was in complete active opposition to it. Verse 13 makes that clear. Only Christ who makes the gospel connect with only Christ makes the gospel connect with the souls of men. So let me spend the last ten minutes working through this final point. So the second point is I argue that there's an imposing nature to the gospel. Let me add to that. Let me add to that and say this the imposing nature of the gospel when it works in tandem with the effectual call of God. Because what you're going to see is the soteriological circle, or circle being closed, I believe. I believe, consistent with the rest of Paul's writings, who, by the way, wrote more about salvation than any other author in the Bible, okay? Um, And so it seemed to be something he cared a lot about. (laughs) And he wrote most of the New Testament, so it, it goes to, stands to reason. But let's talk about the imposing nature of the gospel when it works in tandem with the effectual call. Let me do this. I'm going to read 11 and 12 and then pick up in 15, okay? For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, uh, from any man nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. But when he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So my question is, when and how does the gospel's power become activated in your life or in my life or in the life of an unbeliever crossing over to being a believer? When and how does the gospel's power become activated in our life? How do we reconcile the fact that countless people, again, have heard the gospel, as Paul heard it, and yet its power never changed them? Now, there are a lot of answers to that. There's a lot of, uh, we, we could take stabs at that. I, I get all that. How about those who rejected the gospel for years until they finally believed? I mean, I think these are the things that we have to wrestle with and start trying to answer and listen to other answers and reason through. But I want to work through this text and see if it might help a, and provide an answer. Here we're getting at a look at the mechanics of salvation through Paul's conversion story. So what happened when Paul was converted is Paul knew the gospel. Paul understood it. He understood what it stood for. He understood, not as you and I do, but who Jesus was, who he claimed to be. This is another reason they tried to kill him. 
This is another reason they did kill him, because they knew exactly what he's saying. They knew exactly who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God, right? They figured him a blasphemer. Paul was a, Paul, it's, they all knew that. So there's no surprise there. So when Paul's on his way, Jesus encounters him. You remember the situation, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's in that moment, as it's kind of captured in, in brief, here in, here in verse 11 and 12, that Jesus took what Paul knew, but he made him see in a way that Paul believed. I mean, this is what's happening. It was revealed to him. That word revealed or the revelation that was made was a revelation unto life. It wasn't a, hey, I just want to explain to you these tenets for you to chew on. That's not the way that verb is used. He revealed to him. In other words, he opened his eyes. He illuminated his mind, his heart. He gave him what Paul would, what Paul earlier said could only be spiritually discerned and he made him to see these things and so Paul went from oh I know the gospel to now the gospel's been revealed to me now I get it I get it and why because Jesus said I'm going to make sure you know this I'm going to impose my will on your life we call this regeneration the gospel revelation Paul refers to in verse 12 was the moment he was made alive, Ephesians 2, and subsequently the awakening of faith. We call this regeneration. Here Paul answers the question, why after all this time of knowing the gospel does he suddenly believe it? And I want to point out a couple of things in this last, in this verse 15. There's some verbs that are used here that help to give you a framework, because that's what Paul's doing. He says, when he had been set apart before the before he was born it also says and who called me by his grace and then finally he was pleased to reveal his son so those three verbs i want to finish by interacting with he set apart this is paul's argument i mean he uses this language so you have to interact with it what does that mean to be set apart i mean to me and i understand i have these lenses on i get it so it seems very clear to me Coming from a very staunchly non-Calvinist background, okay? So I've, I've, I've been on both sides. I see both sides. I understand if you're thinking of optical illusions, sometimes you see the hourglass for so long, and then all of a sudden you see the two faces. I can't see the two faces anymore. All I see is the hourglass. Where for some of you, you see the two faces, but you just can't see the hourglass. And that's not lost on me, and I sympathize with that, and that's, and that's, that's good. That's good. Um, but... We'll walk through it as I see it presented in the text. Set apart. This is Paul's argument. He is making the point that the only reason he left the life he was zealous for was because God set him apart before he was born for a new life in Christ. That's the only explanation as to why all of a sudden there's been this change in his trajectory that's gospel-centered, that's Christ-word versus gospel antagonist and antichrist. That's the explanation there, and he gives it. I think he's trying to help them understand. Listen, this is where I was. The reason I'm not there anymore is because before I was born, I was set apart for something else, and that's an action that was set apart. That was not a foreknowledge issue. That was not a, well, God knew this would happen. God set him apart. God wrote these things in the, in the annals of history, right? He wrote these things to make it very clear for them to understand and this is not new language to us when we look at the Bible. We shouldn't balk it. Oh, we set apart. Mm, how do I wrestle with that? Well, you wrestle with it by reading the 
the, the, the copious times, it's throughout the entire Bible. One being, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us when? Before the foundations. When was Paul set apart? Before he was born. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Foreknew, meaning he set his affections upon it. Someone who's a sincere linguist with the Greek text will not look at that foreknowledge and say, well, he just had a knowledge of. Because if you read it that way, it disrupts the rest of the golden chain. It's just a bad hermeneutic. And I know not everybody sees it that way, and I'm saying these things kind of strong. But, but, uh, but again, allow me that, and I appreciate it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his image. Foreknew from a time long ago, which, by the way, God is eternal, so from eternity past. Romans 9, 7 through 12, listen to this just a little bit. And not all children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And, only, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. When did that happen? Before they were born. It wasn't, you know, 10 seconds before they were born. It wasn't when they were conceived. It was from eternity past. You say, how do you know that? It doesn't say that, uh, it doesn't say that directly in the text. Well, it does in Revelation 13.8. Well, it does when it talks about those who will worship the beast. And it says, who's going to worship the beast? Or one beast. <laughs> it says that they will worship those whom name was not written in the book of life from eternity past. You see, our names are written because we're set apart, because we're called, because we're predestined to use a biblical word. It says everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life will fall and worship the beast. We're called by grace. You're not just set apart, but you're called by grace. Again, not strange words to the Bible. This is an effectual call. Yeah, there's a general call. We issue a gospel call to all people. All people. We labor to give the gospel maybe to the same person until their dying day or our dying day. Maybe to never see them come to Christ. And then yet we give a fluffy, weak gospel presentation to this, you know, staunchly you know, anti-Christian person, and all of a sudden, everything just comes into play for them. Like, yeah, I need Jesus. I've seen it happen. It's happened with, with me. It's crazy. So how do you reconcile that? It's the effectual calling of God. It's them being set apart. And keep in mind, this context of Galatians, what Paul is talking about is salvation. I mean, it's a salvific context. So you have to take this word call salvifically. I mean, that's hermeneutics. This is a salvific context, meaning that the grace by which they're called is a saving grace. It's not the grace that falls on the just and the unjust, which many would call a common grace. This is not the same kind of grace. This is a saving grace. And you know, the scripture, when it refers to the called ones, it's talking about the saints of God. It's talking about those whom Christ has redeemed. Jude 1.1, to those whom are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. All those are to be taken as the same, right? Called, beloved, kept. 
It's all lumped under one people, the saints. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and he also glorified. The problem is, if we say called is universal, what does that do with justified and glorified? Then we've got a universalism teaching going on. If all that are called, which it says here, are justified, and we take call to be the general call to every man, then that means every man is justified and every man is glorified. And that's a problem because you need to rip out all the things about the doctrine of hell and things of that nature in the Bible because then you have a breakdown in consistency and hermeneutics. But the call is a salvific call. Those set apart before they were born, those written in the book of life before the foundations of the world, those whom God set his affections upon through foreknowledge, those whom God draws. Only the saints are justified and glorified. So only the saints of God have the type of calling Paul refers to here, the effectual calling of God. And then the final verb is that he's set apart, called by his grace, and then Revelation is made known to him with regards to the Son. You start to see how things piece together. What Paul experienced when it says that he made revelation to him, it's the gospel. And central to the gospel is Jesus Christ. And Paul was made to see by the divine grace of God. So do you see how it starts to piece together? Just in this little section, I think Paul's helping them to understand the framework of salvation. We're set apart, called by God for salvation, so that at the appointed time God might reveal his son to us that we might believe. This is the tandem nature of the gospel and the effectual call of God. And I believe the gospel is the power of God unto all who believe, but only to those who are set apart. Only to those whom revelation is made. Those are the ones that will believe. I think that's a logical, cogent, biblical explanation for the question why are all these people exposed to the gospel and so few are affected by its power? Because as a Christian, I need to give a response for why I believe the gospel is powerful. The Bible says it is, but I need to be able to explain why and how it's powerful and especially do so outside of myself. So we think of the gospel in this way. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the nature, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The gospel is included in this. We labor to bring the gospel to every man, but the power of the gospel is only applied to those who would believe. And that's what Paul says. I mean, just to be clear, because it sounds a, little, a bit ominous, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto man, to all who believe. The power, here, here's your final, your, your final application. And here's what I want to take away a framework for the doctrine of salvation, but I want to make an application with regard to the power of the gospel. And that's this. One is the power of zeal. Paul was zealous. Is no match for the power of Jesus and, his, and the application of his gospel. And that should be very encouraging to all of us. This goes for the zeal of those in opposition to the gospel, as Paul was. Have you ever met a lost cause? I mean, you felt that way, right? You've labored to share Christ with someone, and it's like, man, it's just not landing. 
Maybe you give up. Maybe you say, hey, the Bible says I can wipe the dust off my feet. And you do. And I get it. I've done that. I've done that. But we have to sober up and say, okay, at the end of the day, we might have cause to wipe our dust off the feet. We might run into mockers and scoffers. And we, we might be casting pearls before swine. And the Bible has things to say about that. So we've got to be careful. But we should never walk away thinking they're a lost cause. They can't be changed. They can't be made right. Because that spits in the face of the power of the gospel. Especially when we're looking at the gospel and saying, there's the call of God working in tandem with the power of the God, with the gospel. I mean, that's the, that's the magic formula. I encourage you to consider Paul's testimony. You see, contrary to popular belief, <laughs> the reality is that the doctrine, I believe, of predestination encourages evangelism rather than diminishes evangelism. If the reformed understanding of the doctrines of grace or predestination are true, then this absolutely means that the gospel, when it has its crosshairs with the call of God, it means that they will, without a doubt, come to Christ. Those appointed to salvation believe. What else does that mean? And that gives me great hope. I might go and witness to somebody in O'Neill Village and share with them and them spit in my face, but it doesn't mean the next person that comes or the next person or 20 years down the road that comes, it's going to drop just like it did for Paul. So that's great hope for me. And it lightens the load a little bit because I have nothing to do with their salvation or their damnation. So I encourage you in this way, the zeal for those in opposition to the gospel is nothing that we should be intimidated by because zealousness for the world can be changed for changed to zeal for the gospel in a moment and that's the power of the gospel and finally this also goes for the zeal regarding anything in our lives that has priority over the gospel itself that's for you christian anything that you're zealous for that has priority over the gospel i caution you when we become intimately aware of the gospel we will start to see things through the filter of the gospel sin is no longer seen as opportunity but as an obstruction to honoring jesus this is the way we start to see it when we preach gospel to ourselves every day some are zealous for recognition you want to be affirmed and noticed but when we filter our zeal through our gospel and, and our gospel identity we begin to see that less of us is more of jesus and the application goes on and on and on so don't be intimidated or worried about those who are zealous against the gospel because their zeal is no match for the power of God. Their, their zeal is no match for the gospel as it works in tandem with the effectual calling of God. And then apply this to ourselves and say our zeal for whatever we have going on that sometimes takes precedent or priority over the gospel can be changed and flipped on its head. But we have to be mindful every day of what the gospel has done for us, what it means to us, the identity we have in it, and how that should be borne out in our lives. May we labor and master the discipline of daily gospel application in our lives. Let's pray and we can be dismissed. Lord, again, thank you for another day, another Sunday. Lord, to work through some things through the scriptures. Lord, I pray that this would create some healthy conversation. Um, Lord, as always, I ask that you would protect me from error in handling your word. And I know that some of these issues maybe that I've presented, there are two sides uh, of the fence, and I get that. And I pray that maybe some of those might come to surface and be able to be discussed in a way that is edifying, healthy, and good, and uh, most importantly, honoring to you. 
And so, Lord, we understand that there are complexities that on this side of heaven we will never figure out. Lord, I'm convicted that we should try, that we shouldn't just say, you know what, let's, uh, let's wait till heaven to hope that we get to know these things. Lord, I think we work through these things. You become bigger to us. Your majesty becomes more pronounced, and our worship, therefore, enhances as we know more of you and realize that you are so vast and uh, uh, so transcendent, yet you're imminent. Lord, keep us today. May we glorify you in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.